How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast dedicated to exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I am one of your hosts, Gary Horde, and have made my only rape joke before we hit record. Your only one? I have faith in you, Gary. I think <laughs> you got a promise. Oh, man. I'm co-host Justin Bishop, joined, as always, by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Hey, everybody. Here we are, guys. It's been two weeks since our last show. We're back on this uh, you got this new format, this every other week format. So uh, you. I was going to say, I hope you guys are enjoying that, but I guess yeah. we don't know yet. <laughs> So it's working so far <laughs> working for working for me yeah. uh, gave me a lot more time to prepare that's for sure and uh so you know it worked out for me but I, I was really talking to the listeners i hope that they're enjoying it but we don't they, we haven't given them a chance to enjoy it yet because their first time is, you got to bring it this episode so it feels like oh that was worth it that was worth it well, that's a lot Wait. of pressure gary so. yeah <laughs> but you know there is the, there's a first time for everything and it's just you know you gotta just Take take them by the hand, lead them into the bushes, call them your brave mm-hmm. soldier. All right. Well, um, yep. <laughs> this is that's a, how this episode's going to go, I guess. Uh, to be fair, started- my only rape joke was about raping Justin, so it's like perfectly innocuous. Like it doesn't even <laughs> like it's what doesn't even count. <laughs> Oh man, I feel like we're gonna have to do some editing in this episode to not get our <laughs> right. our show canceled immediately. So I'll, t- I'll, looking- t- I'll, t- I'll tone it down. I can't account for Gary though. No, I'm you can never it. account for Gary. Uh, <laughs> so we are starting a new series this week. This series is going to last for uh, quite a while, like through September, I think. So because every other week, you know, it takes a little longer to get through these series, but it'll be a it'll be a fun journey. Uh, in this series, we're going to be talking about. The films of Paul Verhoeven. I'm sure you guys know the name. If you're a fan of the show, you know the name Paul Verhoeven. Uh, He's the Dutch director who's responsible for cult classics like RoboCop, Basic Instinct, Showgirls, Starship Troopers, some other movies. Uh, But his his films, I'm I'm a big fan of Verhoeven, despite the problematic nature of some of his movies, which, you know, we're not going to skirt around those facts as we discuss these films you can't i was gonna uh, say i don't know how you could <laughs> no no there's no way to do it uh you we, we have to address you know we'll address the good and the bad is what i'm saying all warts and all that's what we like to do here it's not as if like on our toby hooper series when there were films that had issues we didn't discuss those issues we're not lionizing all of these directors and pretending like every film they do is perfect and every decision they make is perfect but right. Our Woody Allen series is going to be off the chain. (laughs) (laughs) So Paul Verhoeven, uh, his films, they're known for their satirical elements, as well as their frequent blending of graphic violence and sexual content. So it seemed fitting that we call this series Sex and Violence, the films of Paul Verhoeven. Because if there's one thing that 
well, if there's two things that all of his films have, it's sex and violence. Also, I, that I, just I, I did, I really realize Jennifer Jason Lee was going to be that naked. I didn't know that either. Jennifer Jason Lee was naked. I mean, have you? She's naked in a lot of movies, so oh. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's not that well, surprising. Well, listen, I um, I had never seen this movie. Honestly, had barely heard of it. So we'll get into it, guys. We got a lot to talk. There's a about lot of there's a lot of shock going on here. When I was, it's funny when I thought of the the name of the series flesh and blood. I also thought that, you know, then I started watching this movie or decided on this being the first movie and decided that the title, an alternate title of this series could very well be the title of the film that we're talking about today. Cause it also kind of fits all of the films in Verhoeven's career. And uh, the film, of course, that we're talking about today is Paul Verhoeven's first English, English language film, flesh and blood. What's more important to you, your immortal souls or your empty purses? They threw me out! Give it back to me and you can ransack the houses of the rich for 24 hours! You missed the loop! Come on! Stay right here with Father George. Why? Fighting is for fools. Bless you, Mark. Your award's in heaven. I'd rather get paid sooner, sir, if you don't mind. My promise to your soldiers was a mistake. I want them out of my city, Hawkwood. Get to the side! Throw down your arms and all your loot. It's a saint. Saint Martin. Martin is my patron saint. I see the hand of God! And I see the soldier, Martin! The bastards who cheated us will pay. We'll wind up with the end of this sword. If St. Mark points that way, we go that way. So before we get into this, I want to kind of acknowledge my source for this because I picked up a book about Paul Verhoeven that has become invaluable as a source for especially the first part of this episode where we're going to talk a lot about his career leading up to this film. But I imagine it's going to be a pretty invaluable source through this entire series uh, it's a it's a book called cleverly Paul Verhoeven. It is written oh, okay. by a guy named Douglas Kesey. Uh, it's a great book. You can grab it on Amazon or wherever. It's a really great book. It's a big like almost like a coffee table type book with big full color pictures, lots of quotes and sources in it. It's it's an excellent uh, source. Nice. What's anyway, it about? well, it's about Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> <laughs> so writing for the Village Voice and. 2000, uh, Dennis Lim said this about Paul Verhoeven. No other filmmaker with massive budgets to blow is as reflexively sardonic, amusingly smut-minded, or pathologically tasteless, and the epithets have been far-ranging. Mad scientist, evil genius, porn peddler, misogynist, homophobe, dirty old man, and Nazi. This is who we're dealing with. Uh, for the next several weeks, gentlemen, <laughs> this guy is—he's is, definitely on the uh, dinner party list. Like he is a controversial yeah. guy. Uh, his films <laughs> can often be controversial, and and from his early films made in in the Netherlands to his time in Hollywood, he's always courted controversy, uh, mostly due to the graphic sex and the violence in his movies. Now we're starting pretty with this movie. We're starting pretty far into Verhoeven's career. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to talk about those early Dutch films in a lot of detail because they're currently unavailable here in the U S whether either, either on disc or streaming, none of them before flesh and blood are available. 
I looked on YouTube and I found a copy of a couple of them, but like I, I tried to watch the fourth man yesterday and it didn't have English subtitles on it. And unfortunately I do not speak Dutch. Uh, so it prevented me from watching it. Uh, Cause I was definitely going to tell me that you, that just tells me that you didn't properly prepare. Like you said, you were going to Justin. well, you know, I Damn started, it. I started using Duolingo to learn Dutch uh, and just couldn't <laughs> quite get it in the two weeks. Uh, that I've been working on this episode. Valiant effort though. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, instead we're going to be focusing on his time making films in America and, and for American studios. But before we do that, we do want to give you an idea of where Verhoeven was in his life and career when he made the move to Hollywood. So Paul Verhoeven was born in Amsterdam on July 18th, 1938, uh, two years before the Germans invaded the Netherlands. So as a young child, he witnessed uh, untold atrocities committed by the Nazis. I mean, this was his childhood. Yes. Uh, between the ages of two and seven, he he saw summary executions of the Dutch people by their occupiers, and he saw Allied planes bombing and being shot down uh, windows would blow out in buildings while he was having dinner uh, he'd see bodies dead bodies strewn about on the streets it's it's in the memories of this time this i mean these are ages two through seven this is these are your earliest memories yeah <laughs> and i think that that is is where you find the origins of his fascination with violence and with very realistic violence you know and all the things that um uh, mr Lim called him it's lucky one of those things wasn't serial killer. Cause I mean, all this stuff that he endured as a kid I yeah. mean, it can warp somebody, you know, it's, uh, we're very lucky that he turned to art. I think. Well, yeah, luckily he just turned it into a creative outlet. Right. <laughs> but because he had seen all this stuff in real life, you know, as a kid, he refuses to lie about the effect of violence, the, the effects that violence has on the human body. Uh, he said, and this is a quote from him. He says, I prefer to show things instead of depicting them elliptically or suggest or suggesting them. My tendency is to be ultra realistic with violence. So he he's there's nothing, even though some of his movies can be a little over the top, uh, not this one included, but especially as we get into a couple more down the line, they can be over the top, but the violence still doesn't really feel cartoony in the way that maybe like an 80s horror movie violence can be like it feels visceral so during the nazi occupation he saw a lot of pro-fascist propaganda films uh stuff that would go on to inform a lot of what we're going to talk about in starship troopers in a few weeks uh, but after the war dutch cinema saw a flood of american genre films uh, westerns action adventures sci-fi and seeing these movies as a teenager verhoeven knew this is what he wanted to do with his life he wanted to be a film director and Ver Verhoeven was an artist you know, as a kid. He was already, he was really good at drawing specifically. And he ended up going to art school in Paris and wanted to pursue filmmaking, but was kind of dissuaded by his father since there was at the time practically no film industry in the Netherlands. Wow. So he went to school uh, and he went, actually went on to earn a PhD in mathematics and physics from the University of Leiden. Uh, but his, Love for film never abated. I mean, th this guy, he was a genius. He could have gone on to be a professor or, or a scientist or something, you know, but he had this artistic streak. And while he was there at university, he saw films by directors who would have a lasting influence on his work. Uh, folks like Ingmar Bergman, Billy Wilder, Akira Kurosawa, and his personal favorite, Alfred Hitchcock. That's a, that's a nice um sort of cross-section of a lot of different types of movie makers. Oh yeah, for makers. sure. Feels like that, those uh, four would actually give you a really great education in film. 
Yeah, absolutely. And he had been given a 16 millimeter film camera by his uncle when he was about 17. And uh, so he, he had been playing around with filmmaking. And then while in college, he joined the Leiden Film Club, where with the help of some fellow students, he began to develop his craft and he directed four short films, uh, one of which I think uh, a couple of which won some awards like student film festival awards, you know. Now, do you think he was as wild as he is now back then? I think okay. he was somewhat experimental. I mean, his his style definitely changed uh, over time, even from his early Dutch films through something like Flesh and Blood. His style changed pretty drastically. So uh, but after college, Verhoeven was drafted into the military for two years. Uh, it was it was a uh, I believe it's it was at the time like a requirement to spend two years in the military in the Netherlands. But while he was there, he managed to get himself assigned to the Marine Film Service. And he made a documentary for the military called the Marine Corps. And it was essentially a propaganda film, like a pro-military propaganda film, but it still gave Verhoeven his first chance at directing big action sequences, including one where hundreds of Marines storm a beach. Like you can, you can see footage of this uh, online. It's funny because when he was doing this, since he was a low ranking military, you know, I don't know what his rank was, but he was pretty low. But some of the guys who he was directing were higher ranked than him. So he technically could not tell them what to do while directing because he was directing actual <laughs> actual Marines. So he would have to tell like a a higher ranking official what he wanted them to do. And then they would tell, have to tell bark them, the orders. Tell them they got to <laughs> do it better. <laughs> Isn't that so bizarre? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so the Marine Corps documentary was well-reserved, uh, was, excuse me, well-received. And I think it actually won some awards in like a, it was like another, like, like a military film festival or something like that, you know, something wow. very specific. Uh, but his next project was another documentary. And this one was produced for Dutch television. It was about the leader of a Dutch fast, fascist party before and during world war ii called portrait of anton adrian moser uh, which was released in 1968 and after this documentary he turned to something a little more lighthearted. he uh, and probably what would become his big commercial breakthrough and it was a tv series a family-oriented tv series called florist it's kind of a robin hood ivanhoe type cool. swashbuckler you know tongue-in-cheek swashbuckling adventure set in the middle ages and this series is is notable for a few reasons uh one despite its comedic tone and what was supposed to be family friendly some parents complained about its violence uh which was the first but certainly not the last time such complaints would be lodged against a Verhoeven movie and uh, another one for for the lead role the role of Floris the character of Floris Verhoeven cast a young unknown actor named Rutger Hauer, uh, with whom he would go on to make five additional feature films after this. Nice. And also, Floris uh, was written by a guy named uh, Gerard Sodeman, who would go on to script all seven of Verhoeven's features that were produced in the Netherlands. This early on, he's already kind of gathering a, like a group of frequent collaborators. Yeah, assembling the crew. Yeah. Yeah. And F Floris ended up being one of the most popular Dutch TV series of its time, uh, it was it was probably the largest production for a TV series ever produced in the Netherlands. It was the beginning of Verhoeven's true career as a film director. He followed it up with a short film, a little short sex comedy called The Wrestler in 1970, which ended up being his first collaboration with cinematographer Jan de Bont, who would go on to work with him on six feature films. Uh, he also directed Speed <laughs> and Twister. 
<laughs> yeah. But yeah, Jan Dubat started his career as a as a hell of a cinematographer. I mean, go look at his IMDb. It's it's a pretty incredible list of films. And then there was another sex comedy called Business is Business that would follow in 1971. And it served as Verhoeven's feature film debut. And he he didn't love that movie necessarily. He essentially took the job because it was given to him. It was offered to him. And he kind of figured that he was worried that if he didn't take the opportunity and accept this, that he might not get another opportunity. Like he, he saw it as his foot in the door, even though he wasn't particularly enthusiastic about the film, but the movie ended up being a big success. It was, it was incredibly popular, incredibly successful. It ended up becoming the fourth most popular Dutch film ever made. And it opened the door to what Verhoeven considers to be his true first film, Turkish Delight. The Turkish Delight was uh, incredibly popular when it was premiered in 1973. And of course, as uh, we're, we're gonna, this word's gonna come up a lot in the series, but it was incredibly controversial as well. <laughs> Take a shot every time we say controversy or controversial in, in the course of this series. Uh, but that movie, what's that? I said I'm already hammered. Well, I mean, yeah, we started off that way. So <laughs> <laughs> that would go on to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Foreign Film and is still the highest grossing Dutch film ever made. In 1999, the uh, the Netherlands Film Festival voted it the best Dutch film of the 20th century. It was shot in 42 days, and it was styled after the films of the French New Wave, a very loose and improvised shooting style that utilized handheld cameras, available light. It's very loose and improvised, uh, very just not rehearsed, not storyboarded, almost like cinema verite, very different from what you'll see in later Paul Verhoeven movies. And that film reunited Verhoeven with Rudger Hauer, who'd played, he played the lead in Turkish Delight, uh, who is, the lead character is kind of this bohemian artist who's in a romance with a young girl named Olga, who ends up getting a brain tumor and she's she's dying throughout the film. Uh, she was played by an actress by Monica, named Monica Vanderven. Opinions on the film to this day are varied. I mean, a lot of people call it an artistic masterpiece. Uh, others call it trashy sexploitation because it's unapologetic in, in the sexuality of the film. I mean, and it's not just female nudity, it's male nudity. You definitely see Rudger Hauer's dong multiple times in it. And uh, <laughs> as you will throughout <laughs> throughout the films that he made with Paul Verhoeven. But, uh, you know, at the time of its release, women's groups protested the films with pamphlets saying, and this is probably translated, honestly, but... <laughs> this is what the pamphlets say. The women and girls in this great film are all thumb suckers and bitches. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, something must have gotten lost in translation. <laughs> Maybe thumb suckers is some sort of weird insult. In, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no. Actually, there is a character in the film. Uh, Monica uh, Vanderven's character does suck her thumb in the film. So that's what that's they're being quite literal. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, sure. And it might have been alluding to like, kids so maybe the girls are way too young or something no, no, but no, I mean, she just actually sucks her thumb oh okay uh very reminds me old... of uh chronicles of narnia because that kid what because <laughs> of turkish delight because that kid loved <laughs> turkish delights that's all i could <laughs> think the only... of that's it he would that's fucking what, murder somebody for a turkish delight turkish delights it's Turkish Delights. Which is what he would have had probably it. in the Paul Verhoeven, Ver, Ver, Verhoeven version of uh, Chronicles of Narnia. If you'd have you ever had Turkish Delight? I never have. No. It's a fucking garbage candy. It's terrible. Well, that kid loved <laughs> it. Is, I'm just saying. That kid lived a sheltered life where things like 
Kit Kats and Twix and Reese's Cups didn't exist. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> Turkish Delight is terrible. Oh. Uh, anyway, not the movie. Uh, so Verhoeven's own father, who had also always supported his son's film, actually refused to see Turkish Delight because, uh, mostly because there's a there's a line by Rudyard Hauer where he says, and I quote, I fuck better than God. So his dad didn't like that. His dad's a, you know, a, a religious guy and, you know, didn't like that line coming out of his son's film. Yeah. Well, that's I not mean, something it's... you say if you're a religious person, like God is clearly the best fucker. In the world. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, if you oppose that line, that is essentially what you're saying, right? If that doesn't <laughs> on a t-shirt. <laughs> Nobody then, fucks uh, better than God. Actually, I feel like that could sell in some circles, though. That would be <laughs> Make sure you got our little cinema shock skull on there. Get the little scully on there. Oh, man. So the, the film's depiction of full frontal nudity, both male and female, uh, cunnilingus, sex, vomit, and actual shit uh, caused people to say that it was made for nothing more than shock value. Uh, there is one scene, for instance, in this Paul Verhoeven book that I've used as a resource on a lot of this uh has a half page pictorial of just a screenshot of this scene but it's uh rudger hauer and and monica vanderven they have a little quickie in the car and in a hurry to get back dressed he zips his dick up in his zipper uh kind of like in there's something about mary but it was his actual dick and there's this whole like weird little comedic scene where he's trying to get his dicks out of his zipper <laughs> and listen, it wasn't a prosthetic he's just unapologetic an actual... and he wanted to show violence against a human body and it's that's it true comes, and it comes in hey. many forms and i didn't hey, mean it, it comes right there but like you know and as many times <laughs> as you've seen rucker howard's wiener it's easy to believe that he's just not used to operating a zipper as he's not normally wearing pants so it's just <laughs> How does this thing work? So <laughs> after the success of the film, Verhoeven was given nearly a million dollars to direct what was at the time, the most expensive Dutch movie ever made, uh, which is a movie from 1975 called Katie Tipple st uh, starring Monica Vanderven in the lead role alongside Rudger Hauer. Uh, it was originally supposed to be actually uh, a much higher budget. I think about two, it was supposed to be about $2 million and they actually cut it, but it still ended up being the most expensive Dutch film ever made at the time. And then his next film would be even bigger. His next film was shot on a budget of $2.5 million, again, breaking the record to be the most expensive Dutch film ever made. And that was his 1977 World War II epic, Soldier of Orange. Uh, and that came, became his first international breakthrough. It was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film, even prompting an invitation from Steven Spielberg to come to Hollywood. Uh, it also became the first film to bring Rudger Hauer to international attention. Cool. Spielberg saw this movie and he saw how, how well Verhoeven worked with a fairly low budget. You know, it, it might've been high for the Netherlands at the time, but for Hollywood, 2.5 million, even in 1977 was pretty damn small. But uh, so Spielberg's like, hey, we should bring this guy to Hollywood, give him some real money to make something, you know. That invitation from Spielberg was rescinded when Spielberg saw Verhoeven's follow-up film, just 1980s Spedders. Spielberg literally was just like, ah, oh, no, we're good. We're good after seeing that movie. So Spedders, uh, it, its depictions of masturbation, fellatio, and homosexual gang rape, once again, unsurprisingly caused a great deal of controversy. Like, I don't get it. 
And what does Spielberg know, really? I mean, yeah, yeah, for real. Uh, <laughs> Spielberg's so never been time, in a homosexual gang rape. <laughs> during this time in Verhoeven's career, a considerable amount of the film's financing came from government subsidies, meaning that the film's script had to be approved by the subsidy board before funding could be secured. That's how Verhoeven was getting a lot of his funding, including on Spetters. His first script for Spetters was rejected by the board for being indecent. So the director submitted a toned down version of his script so that he could get that funding. He got the funding and then he just went ahead and filmed the first script anyway, which kind of pissed off the subsidy board. (laughs) (laughs) Critics kind of tore into the movie. A lot of them thought that it gave a negative portrayal of Dutch society as being decadent and perverted. Uh, There was an anti-spedders committee formed which picketed screenings and passed out flyers calling the film dangerous, anti-woman, anti-gay, and anti-disabled. And and I get it. I mean, if you read about this movie, like there's some kind of fucked up stuff. There's one of the main characters is he, he like robs, he beats up and robs these like gay dudes. Uh, And then later he is the victim of a gang rape and decides that he likes it and comes out as gay later on in the movie. Uh, so you can see how that would be what, what we in 2021 would call problematic. <laughs> you know, that's it's kind of kind of fucked up, honestly. But so you can I definitely see where the controversy comes from. But the movie did well. <laughs> like at the box office, it did it did well. Uh and, and it well, could have been you gotta assume like a committee like that almost does some of your marketing for you. Yeah, if somebody says you're not allowed to see something, more people are gonna go see yeah. it. Yeah. Absolutely. The female lead in that film was played by an actress named Renee Sutinjik. If I'm probably butchering that name, so I apologize to any of our Dutch listeners. Uh, please let us know, you know, give us a tweet and tell us how to actually pronounce that because uh, I'm doing my best here. Based on the early parts of this episode, I doubt that's what we'll get tweeted about. <laughs> Uh, but she would go on to play the lead character in Verhoeven's next film, which was 1983's The Fourth Man. So as with Verhoeven's previous work, the film is sexually explicit, filled with graphic violence, filled with gore. And while the film was a box office hit in the Netherlands, it wasn't as successful as some of Verhoeven's previous films. However, when it was released in the United States, it gained widespread acclaim from critics and became the highest gr- grossing Dutch film of all time in America, uh, essentially rolling out the red carpet for Verhoeven's eventual move to Hollywood filmmaking. The Fourth Man's also very different stylistically from a lot of his earlier films because he took his earlier films have that sort of cinema verite, French New Wave kind of handheld approach to cinematography. Where The Fourth Man, it, it was highly planned, uh, storyboarded. It's very uh, visually, it's a lot more style stylistic, I guess you could say, uh, a lot less. He's going for a lot less realism in it because there's a lot of really surreal imagery in The Fourth Man that would honestly feels more at one with some of his later movies than with his earlier Dutch films. Now, a lot of you are probably wondering maybe why we went all th- through all these details on Verhoeven's career uh, in the Netherlands when we're not talking about any of those movies this week. And I think it's because really I want you guys to understand who this guy was at this point in time. This was a director who was already, his career and his films were already mired in controversy. They were filled with graphic violence, religious imagery, and unabashed sexuality. Many of the themes that were present in those early films are the same themes that would pop up throughout 
his Hollywood career. But despite all that controversy, he was incredibly successful. He was the most successful filmmaker in the Netherlands, possibly the most successful Dutch filmmaker of all time. It's important to kind of know like who he is and and, and where he started because a lot of this stuff is going to crop up again. And if you thought he would tone things down a bit when he got to Hollywood, well... You, you would be incorrect. Uh, and if you've watched this movie, and hopefully you have, then then you understand why. Well, and then I think like for all the, you know, for as much controversy as he courts, it's his films are undeniably influential, especially, oh, I mean, even just the sci-fi stuff is, you know, okay. very, very influential. Absolutely. Verhoeven had spent years having to struggle to secure funds for his movies from the Dutch government subsidy board who wanted to produce films on less controversial subjects. So instead of continuing to fight that fight, he decided to seek funding elsewhere for his next project. His next project was a medieval drama that was originally titled God's Own Butchers, which I guess proves to you that he is not toning things down. Also, God's Own Butchers is a great name for a death metal band. I was going to say, that's a dope title, man. (laughs) It's a great title. It's a great title. At this point in his career, Verhoeven had been making movies for nearly two decades already, and he was now ready to make movies for the American market using American money, but he didn't want to go to America to do it because he didn't want to lose touch with his European culture. So once he was able to get the majority of the film, seven and a half million dollar budget from Orion Pictures, a Hollywood studio, while being allowed to remain in Europe, uh, specifically Spain, which is where they shot this, it seemed like the perfect situation for Verhoeven. He was getting the best of both worlds. At least that's what it seemed like. But things would not stay looking quite so sunny for Verhoeven in regards to to the creation of this film. So Verhoeven's original title for the film that would later be retitled Flesh and Blood. One place that I I saw said that Flesh and Blood, the, the title came from a Roxy Music album, which there is a Roxy Music album called Flesh and Blood with the little plus sign. I'm not sure why, how, what, what, the correlation between the movie and that album are for Verhoeven, but that's apparently where he got the title Flesh and Blood. What Maybe is Roxy sing? Is that that's the she's got the look people? Is that them? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I can't remember. <laughs> No, maybe the album. Maybe it's kind of like a Dark Side of the Moon, uh, Wizard of Oz thing, where like he made the film, and that album is actually like an alternate soundtrack. Oh, you mean like the total coincidence of uh, uh, between Dark Side of the Moon and the Wizard of Oz? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is not the band I was thinking of. So I don't know Roxy. Sorry for all you Roxy heads out there that well, just love Roxy. Music is the band. Yeah, not just Roxy. Whatever. Anyway, the uh, <laughs> Gary, Gary and they prefer to be called they prefer they prefer to be called rockheads. Um, so stupid. <laughs> yeah, the the um, I, I heard somewhere that Orion originally wanted him to do like a war movie. They had seen like Soldier of Orange, and they thought he would make make a yeah. good war movie. That was the original idea, but he didn't have anything readily available. But he and Gerard uh, Soapman had the group or the story about the medieval mercenaries ready to go. They had worked on it like 10 years prior or something. And well, they, well, they had done Floris, that TV series earlier, which was a medieval film. Their, their screenplay for this began with ideas that they had taken out of the script for that TV series. Uh, maybe that's what it was. So, cause I, oh. remember that was a family friendly TV series. So there are a lot of, a lot, pretty much oh. everything in this movie. Sort of like not. this movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> would not, would not fit. But yeah, that, that's where that idea came from. It wasn't that they had been working on the script for Flesh and Blood 10 years earlier. It's that the, they had done Florist 10 years earlier, 
and well, actually more than that, probably about 15 years earlier, but they, they still had all these ideas that they wanted to do. So they used those to form a script for what would become flesh and blood. Gotcha. Like Rutger Hauer's like kind of like the Robin hood of your virginity. <laughs> what well, doesn't make sense. He's taking it from you and giving it to someone else. (laughs) Your analogy doesn't stand, Gary. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Still made you laugh. That was the point. Really, that's that's what's at the heart of it. Um, (laughs) And it's it's like, you know, Verhoeven does a lot of shit. He probably had something else in mind, but it's important that it just gives you the visceral feeling you needed. I don't know where I'm going with this. It's time to kind of move on. (laughs) Verhoeven's original plan for the film was to center it uh, it was going to be about two old friends who become bitter rivals he was basically inspired by Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch where you had these two old friends who are then on different sides of things so in his original version of the story Hawkwood and Martin are both members of a medieval band of mercenaries who were promised the spoils of victory if they helped this nobleman named Arnolfini take back his city from the enemy. But once the battle's been won, uh, Arnolfini breaks his promise and drives the mercenaries from the city. This all probably sounds pretty familiar to you if you've watched this movie. But then wanting to retire from soldiering, Hawkwood sides with Arnolfini against his own former band and is forced to lead a posse in pursuit of Martin, who's kidnapped Agnes, this young girl who's been betrothed to Arnolfini's son. This was kind of the extent of Verhoeven's intended story. Uh, Agnes was not a major character. She was just sort of a plot device in it. But Orion thought that the film needed a love interest. So they foregrounded that Agnes character. She, uh, She was brought in as a main character in the film. And then the movie becomes more about the way that she's torn between Martin and Arnolfini's son, Stephen. Uh, this was a decision that Verhoeven would come to regret. He would later say, the triangular, triangular relationship, Martin and Agnes and Stephen, is now the main storyline. But in retrospect, I think we should have stuck with Hawkwood and Martin. The failure of flesh and blood was a lesson for me. Never again compromise on the main storyline of a script. That's good. good. Yeah. yeah. Right. Good job, Gary. Thanks. You transported <laughs> me, Gary. I thought I, I thought I was actually talking to Paul Verhoeven. There it is. <laughs> so, in addition to Orion Pictures, Verhoeven also received funding from Spanish, Dutch, and other international sources, each of whom wanted to impose their own ideas, their own technicians, and their own cast members onto the film. Uh, and Verhoeven would end up casting actors from all over the world in order to appeal to a worldwide market. And while this seems like a well-intentioned idea, uh, trying to direct American, Dutch, British, and Australian performers while working with a crew who had a variety of customs and languages proved pretty frustrating for him, and it caused a lot of delays and a lot of disagreements on set. Uh, it, this was a, apparently a pretty chaotic set. Uh, members of the cast and crew would drink and do drugs, and they would often disappear from the set completely, and then they'd be found partying on a nearby beach. And the shoot got so chaotic that Verhoeven was actually worried that he would be fired by the studio and replaced by another director. Well, the one thing that brings everybody together is alcohol and drugs. So I feel like that that was a, uh, a purposeful glue that the uh, set needed. Oh, I'm sure the I'm sure that the cast members who were participating all bonded very well, but it, it yeah. probably didn't didn't make things easy for Verhoeven, who's trying to, you know, herd them all onto the set to make a movie. In one interview, the thing that, the thing that bonded them wasn't for. glue. Hate to tell you, I don't know what that even means. That's a jizz joke, guys. That's a jizz joke. Is your jizz glue things? 
Well, um, well when you, it, it gets sticky and uh, yeah. you know, when it dries, it crusts things together. I mean, I, I guess, guess it's if, only appropriate that this this episode of this show is disgusting me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say that, yeah, in one interview, he mentioned this being like the worst filming experience of his life. Um, yeah. that, he, that he actually almost quit film making films altogether. Altogether. Like, yeah. Yeah, wow. like he was just kind of done. And uh, but yeah, that, he's like, like some this, of, is this what American film sets are like? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, they said like some of the uh cast and stuff would call it uh the movie Flesh, Flesh and Blood and Elbows because that like like the cast members would like be literally using their elbows to like push each other out of this frame. <laughs> like everybody <laughs> wanted to be on screen, it was like just no order whatsoever. Uh, the previous movie you mentioned, like he had storyboarded everything out and all of that, and apparently he didn't do that in this one. And he yeah. says he regrets that. Yeah, he he decided he didn't want to storyboard this one because he wanted a really loose, improvised shooting style, but mm. it ended up on a production this big that ended up just causing chaos. Like it seemed, it felt unplanned uh, because this is a big production and, and you things, I mean, when you've got that many moving parts, you need some sort of guide and that's what a storyboard kind of is. And yeah, he, he would go on to say that that was one of the, one of the bigger mistakes that he made on this film. Another somewhat unexpected source of trouble on the set also came from a member of the cast, which was Verhoeven's regular collaborator, Rudger Hauer. Rutger! <laughs> Working with Verhoeven had made Hauer incredibly popular in his native Netherlands. And as I mentioned earlier, his work on Soldier of Orange brought him to the attention of Hollywood. And he started working in America on American films. His first American film role came in 1981. He was the villain in the Sylvester Stallone film Nighthawks. He was actually billed second to Sylvester Stallone. That's a pretty damn good uh, not a bad gig gig for your for your first american film i mean he's on the movie poster right there with with uh salon nice. uh, that was followed by roles in ridley scott's blade runner uh sam peckinpah's the osterman weekend and richard donner's lady hawk among others uh, most of his hollywood roles at this point had been as villains uh, most notably of course as his turn as roy batty in blade runner but he was determined to kind of get rid of his image as a villain in order to play more heroes. So he, at the time that he was starting on Flesh and Blood, he was just rapping on Lady Hawk, which was another medieval film, is this kind of medieval fantasy adventure. And in that, he played a valiant hero that the audience could root for. And it was this kind of traditional hero that he wanted to play in Flesh and Blood. But Verhoeven had no intention of making another one of these medieval fantasies or sword and sorcery adventures that were popular in Hollywood at the time. Mm. Yeah. They, they said that, you know, he, he basically, I mean, what, what you said, they disagreed on the character and uh, I found an interview with him where uh, he, the, the interviewer asked him, is he moving towards the studio's wishes, wishes more than what you want to do? And uh, he said, well, here, I'll quote him. Uh, that would be my interpretation. I would say he is an asshole because he had changed so much because of the film industry and he was not the same guy anymore. And Rutger would probably say, Paul is insecure because it was his first American movie and he couldn't direct me anymore. Yeah, so we have two very good reasons, two ways of looking at things. And it would not be realistic to say that my version is the best one. I believe my version, of course, but I'm sure that he believes his. We always got into arguments. I want him to play it lighter, my version was more like Burt Lancaster and the Crimson Pirate, much more buoyant. And it never got to that. It was always heavy, always straight. So 
there's that side of it. And, and, and I've seen later interviews where Paul Verhoeven talks about that he kind of regrets that part too, that he understands where Rutger was going and he's trying to be this leading man. And he's yeah, got into this not... role also doing like, well, rape scenes. And, yeah, yeah, uh... some pretty <laughs> deplorable shit. And, but that's, that's the thing is, yeah, Rutger Hauer might have wanted to be a leading man, but then he shouldn't have taken this role because that's well, not. He said it was the... agreed on beforehand. I mean, what was that they were going to that he was going to be a hero? Yeah, I forget where I saw that now, but they well, no, that that it was a role he had promised to Verhoeven before all of this other stuff had happened. Right, right. But still, I mean, if if the role is something that's completely the opposite of what you want to play or is, is because this kind of was, I mean, then just back out of it. Let somebody else do it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Verhoeven, you know, kind of true to his nature, his his plan was to completely subvert the genre. He wanted to inject realism into the myth. He wanted to create a view of the Middle Ages, which he saw as a, this is a quote from him, a cruel, wanton, dangerous, stinking time in which to live. Like he wanted to show the Middle Ages as closer to what it actually was than what had been depicted on film up sure. until this time. Everything else like romanticizes the Middle Ages. Right. And uh, I mean, Westerns are a- the same way, you know, it's a, it's a myth. Yeah, but this is like a, yeah, exactly. Like it, it, these are actually places you would probably, as much as you'd love to say you'd love to time travel back to those times. I mean, it's full of brutality and disease and poverty and it's not easy living there at all. No, remember when uh, Martin Lawrence traveled? <laughs> remember when Martin Lawrence traveled back to the medieval ages? Yeah, I mean, that was a tough time. Yeah, it was tough being black back then. Yeah. They had never seen a black man back then. They had not in, in a, some in of a these football places. jersey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I think you got to go with Rucker Howard because, I mean, let's be honest, he's seen things you people wouldn't believe. I thought you were going all in. Nope. Wow. That's from Blade Runner. <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you, Todd. Thank you, Thank you for explaining the reference to us, Todd. We, uh, you know, we, we get it. We know who Rutger. We are, okay. we are familiar with the career of Rutger Hauer. Yes. Especially his there. most famous role. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but as Martin Hauer would be playing a, a pretty complex character, one who kind of aspires to bigger things, but he does begin as a rapist and a murderer. That, that meant that Howard would not get to play the chivalrous, decent hero that he thought would be good for his Hollywood career. But a lot of Hollywood guys start as rapists and murderers. A lot of them in that way, too. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and But he and Verhoeven fought so bitterly about the nature of the role that it actually ruined their friendship forever, and they never worked together again. It's kind of sad. Yeah. It is sad. Now, I will say in 20, 2019, Rucker Hauer passed away, and uh, they did, just for the record, I saw a few things that, that Paul Verhoeven mentioned that he and his wife had had dinner with Rucker and his wife, that they had kind of been talking again. So, they patched it up maybe, but not. But they yeah. had not ever, they never reformed a working relationship. Because what if Rucker Hauer had been fucking Robocop? That would have been awesome. He could have been Honestly. really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love Peter Weller, but Roger Howard would have been great. Would have been great in that role, or yeah. in the like Michael Ironside role in Starship Troopers, oh, or wow. you know, oh, yeah, uh, or in the Elizabeth Berkeley role in Showgirls. <laughs> <laughs> All the possibilities. I just, <laughs> man, you're just picturing him dancing now. And I was actually picturing like, in the in the bath in the hot tub scene. Honestly, I was picturing the pool scene where he's bouncing yeah. up and down on that yeah, yeah, dude yeah. for Twin Peaks <laughs> on, on my. On my <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin. 
So the rest of the cast of Flesh and Blood included Jack Thompson as as Hawkwood. And I actually found out that John Hawkwood was an actual person. He's a a real historical figure. And he was an Englishman living who was uh, like a soldier in Italy during the Middle Ages. Uh, He's the only character in this, to my knowledge, that's at least least somewhat based on a real person. But that was Jack Thompson. Uh, Tom Burlinson played Stephen uh susan terrell plays celine which is like prostitute and of course jennifer jason lee as agnes and lee you know she's pretty young here she was about 23 years old when she made this movie although she uncomfortably looks much younger than that in this yeah Uh, but she had begun acting as a teenager and made her big screen debut in the 1981 slasher movie eyes of a stranger have you ever seen that gary that sounds really familiar for some reason. Yeah, I felt like I might have seen it like back in my video store days, you know, like where I would yeah. just rent every movie. But I, I don't remember anything about it. I, I remember the title, but that's about it. There's it also makes a me Queen Strike song it. called Eyes of a Stranger, just FYI. Thanks. <laughs> I did, was not, did not go into this episode expecting a Queen Strike uh, <laughs> reference. <laughs> Same, but, you know, they just pop up whenever you least expect them. <laughs> Which is oddly all the time, so it's really not That's what they say about Queen's Reich, isn't it? They just... But Jennifer Jason Lee's big breakthrough came in 1982 with Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uh, Of course, an incredible film and and another one where she's playing a pretty controversial role. I mean, there was a a lot of controversy around Fast Times when it came out as well. Um, Roger Ebert hated her in Fast Times. Like... Really? She's very good in it. not, Not like hated her, actually. He liked her a lot and you could tell he saw her as uh but as the stereotypical like here's a very pretty solid actress like you got oh you're ruining her like but uh yeah and uh he was he was very much that way about her so i just uh i I didn't look up if roger ebert reviewed uh um flesh and blood because i don't i didn't come across any she got real root in this one roger according to your (laughs) terms but but I will say all that to say that I love Jennifer Jason Lee and what she does because she uh, like goes into like difficult, difficult shit. Like she could yeah, have I mean, been. This is not your typical like. This is not your typical role for a young actress to try to break into being a movie star. And this know? is like her whole career. I mean, she just she just somewhere along done. the way she made that yeah. decision that she's just going to be she's not going to be the pretty leading girl. Like she's yeah. going to she's going to do difficult like some gross roles. Like she's going to yeah. get in yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, and she's she's made a career out of it. I mean, all the way through like I think the most recent things I've seen her in were I mean, The Hateful Eight a couple years ago and uh Possessor yeah. last year. Which yeah. she does not play a very uh, nice person in, in that movie. She gets dirty. Yeah. So I, I like it. I like her. You know her. You know who her father was? Yeah, John Morrow, right? Vic Morrow. Vic Morrow. Sorry, Vic Morrow, who who died on the set of the Twilight Zone movie in the helicopter crash. Oh. Thanks, John Landis. <laughs> Which is uh, Nancy Cartwright, who's in this movie, is in that in that that movie. With not him. in that segment, right? Is it in that segment? I think it's with him, isn't it? Maybe not. Maybe I'm misremembering. I, I don't know. Whatever. So back to the cast. So a couple of other interesting actors in Flesh and Blood include uh, Rudger Howard's Blade Runner co-star Brian James, uh, Bruno Kirby uh, from like The Godfather Two, whose New York accent really kind of 
stands out in medieval Italy. Uh, and then I don't, I just, I just feel like Verhoeven didn't know the difference between Italian and Italian American. And so he's like, Oh, this guy's Italian American, put him in. He's like the most authentic Italian in this movie since everyone else is Australian or British or American. <laughs> and then, uh, then you've got Agnes's maid who, yes, as Gary mentioned, is played by Nancy Cartwright, who, uh, if you don't know the name Nancy Cartwright, well, two years after Flesh and Blood, she would begin a very long career that's still going strong as the voice behind Bart Simpson. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> you get to see Bart Simpson's boobs in this movie. Sure. <laughs> Technically, so you, that is correct. So if you tune in for nothing else, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> would have been uh, funnier if she'd yelled, I caramba, during the, uh, <laughs> the scene of the field. Eat my shorts. <laughs> Eat my shorts, Agnes. <laughs> so, um, uh, I did see that Natasha uh, Natasha Kinski and Rebecca De Mornay were like in the fin- finals to like be Agnes, and really? uh, but De Mornay either was, one of the one, either of them could have been good in that role too. I think. Yeah, De Mornay was dating Tom Cruise at the time though, and supposedly the story was that she was demanding that Cruise was Steven in the movie oh and that, that wouldn't have worked yeah i don't think because i think one of the the, the things about the steven character which i guess we'll get into as we discuss the film but i think that he has to kind of be just portrayed as a ineffectual dork kind of you know like uh, i think that's part of what what that role requires and i think i think tom cruise would have come across as too heroic like i was gonna say two action hero-y yeah like, yeah like all, all, i'm picturing him now in all those scenes with like climbing the ladder over to like scale the castle you know right and all that stuff uh but yeah uh, verhoeven, tom cruise would have seemed too capable right right <laughs> verhoeven uh picked jennifer jason lee though like handpicked her and uh and, and and i couldn't like confirm it for sure but a couple of places they said that uh part of the reason was you know like in fast times he had seen her in fast times and i know i watched some of the commentary he said this in that that he first saw her there but supposedly part of the reason was like in that movie she plays much younger than her role and this is a role like i said in medieval times which you know you want the you wanted the girl to look younger is yeah well i mean that, that's more historically accurate well yeah because uh, yeah, women and, were and, like and, off to marriage at like 12 or something right back right then. Where and they never say how old she is in this movie, but she definitely she definitely looks like she's a teenager, right? Uh, and in Fast Times, she played a, a teenager who gets pregnant. Spoiler alert, I guess for a forty year old movie, but whoa, uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean she's you know it's a it's a pretty highly sexualized role in Fast Times as well, uh, but she I know she's very believable in the role like she's she's a great actress i think jennifer jason lee is really outstanding just in not just in this movie just in general i think she's awesome yeah so yeah i mean she leans into that um you know like well we just finished saying yeah and she she leans into those harder roles and consistently knocks them out of the park yeah so flesh and blood was cut pretty heavily by orion before the film's release it was released in a in a truncated form they primarily targeted the film's sex scenes and the scene where Martin rapes Agnes, which is not a pleasant scene to watch. Uh, it's a very hard scene to watch in, in its uncut form. And I have not seen the edited version of it, so I don't know how that exactly plays. But as uncomfortable as that scene is, it's pretty integral to the plot of the movie, like very integral to the plot of the movie. 
Um, but it's also, I think it's also indicative of the film's most problematic idea. And like I said, we're not going to skirt around some of the more problematic aspects of these Paul Verhoeven movies, but it's that Agnes, as a result of, of being assaulted by him, by Martin, is that she maybe falls in love with him, you know? Yeah, that's uh, the vibe I, mean, I was getting. Yeah, but I mean, the movie does play it where you're not quite sure if she's do if it's real or if she's just doing it for survival. Right, um, right. But the... the 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 idea, of course, of a rape victim enjoying it and then beginning a re- relationship with her attacker is fucking icky. I don't know any other way, way to put it, but it's fucking yeah. icky. Uh, but ironically, this would have never been an issue since the romantic relationship between Agnes and Martin wouldn't have existed had Orion not forced Verhoeven to put a romance into the script. I mean, she might have still been raped in it, but the, the problematic nature of like their relationship past that wouldn't have existed if the Hollywood studio had not insisted on it. This is the equivalency of you saying Orion was asking for it by what they were putting in, <laughs> how they dressed up the script. I mean, honestly, they're the ones who, they're the ones who forced him to put a romance in it. But Verhoeven's like, yeah, but she's their own fault. Raped. Did you see what they did? Like how, how they, what they put in that script. <laughs> they know uh, what Paul Verhoeven's like. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, Lord. (laughs) The thing is, is I, I rape is, let me just say as much as I'm like playing around, I mean, rape is like the ickiest thing for me ever in movies. There are movies that completely like I shut down when I see a rape scene. Like I still do it. It's hard to watch even when it's obviously fake, but it's still it's very it's very uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. This one was uncomfortable to watch, but I will say this: like, I spit on your grave. Uh, there's the uh, Halloween oh, remake, the Halloween remake that Rob Zombie doesn't in that I hate that that's in the un, unrated cut. And uh, there's the um, well, oh, the Hills Have Highs. Remember when we saw that? And there's oh, like yeah, that's rough. The remake. Yeah, the remake, and that's like yeah, the toughest shit to watch. It, Last it house is. on the left, the yeah, remake. There's, there's yeah. like, there's, there's rape scenes that you're just like, and the, and those are usually in those like vengeance movies, um, but the, but in like Rob, we talked about that a little a, bit when we did, um, they call her one eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something that we discussed a lot. And in Rob Zombies, it feels completely pointless. As much as it, it is completely Rob pointless. Zombie, <laughs> that's one scene I'll, I, I can't. I can't get behind like it's just yeah it's, it's there's no point in this like, there's why no point other this? than shock value yeah. like as 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 uncomfortable as it is here at least it is part of the plot of the film like yeah so that's that's where I was going is that I think for some reason by the end of this film I looked at it as I was I've never seen this movie before as so I was uncomfortable when it was happening I couldn't believe it was happening at first because I expected Rutger to at any point turn away or to not do this. Like I just, you know, cause you're used to a movie having a hero or something. And I'm like, okay, well, Martin's been betrayed. He'll be the good guy here. And uh, that's not what happens. So he still ends up raping this girl and it's, it's disturbing and you're watching it. It's, it's, it's bad. That said, this is not an approval of that, but it does. There is context for it. Like, it, and in like when, when, uh, what's her face? Nancy Cartwright's character, the the maid, when she gets 
or she's not, I don't think she's getting raped, I guess, or she's, she's just going with it or something. I mean, and, and Agnes sees that happening. There's, I feel like she got something from that, that it's like better to like, I nothing I'm saying makes it feel like I'm saying something better. Um, <laughs> the, um, I, I, it's a, it, I took it very much as a survival technique that like, if she does this, then she'll have his protection and then sure. she only has to deal with him. And so it was never like a, her saying she wanted it was strictly survival. Well, that's how it starts out. I think yeah. uh, that that's how it plays out. Cause she, she says, you know, to him to not, not let anyone else touch her or anything. And he doesn't. So it does, it does protect her. So it does initially read like it's a survival tactic. Yes. Uh, but then later on, like that, it, the hot tub scene ruins that idea because yeah. she definitely is like into him there. And then she's like flirting with him. I think she like touches his crotch or something in the dinner scene later on. And oh, she's like yeah. smiling at him like, like a lot. <laughs> yeah. Like later on those later scenes, make it be like, make it feel like, well, was that a survival tactic or d- does she actually like, have feelings for him now. And it's part of the complexity of the character that makes the character interesting because you never really know what her motivations are. But it's also kind of gross when you when it comes across yeah. that way. Because I that, mean, I'm the, not hot saying tub, the hot tub scene in particular is like, oh no, this is not her just trying to survive. This is her being really into Martin. Well, you say that, but even at that point in the movie, if she were to deny him or if she were to not make him loyal to her or invested in her and vice versa, then he could just throw her to the wolves at any point. This is before Steven even gets there or any of those people. So this could be just her holding out. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to defend everything here. I'm just saying that's, that's how you could look at it. I'd like to think that's what they were thinking. Um, It it is gross. All of it's gross, but the the whole situation is gross. Um, So it does make for, it does make for a very complex character because I think even does, yeah. just like at the beginning of that hot tub scene, you've got where she doesn't want him to see her getting undressed. But then right. the rest of the scene plays out the way it does. It's like, yeah, yeah. So you're getting a lot of mixed things happening here of like, what does this mean? And yeah, just the complexity is woof, it's even really... at the dinner table it's like she's yeah. seducing him to uh yeah like teach him to use silverware at one point it seems like and she's so, turning <laughs> him into a civilized gentleman she gets right. him to wear white you know like right, instead, of the, exactly. instead of the red that they all wear so it's like she's uh, flexing on him or yeah. something she's in that tur- way she's, she's turning like, the tables yeah and uh and so bit. she does it later too like i mean when he's thrown in the well she immediately sides with the other people to still be like vicious and brutal so that yeah, she's just trying to doesn't happen to with... her. And yeah, exactly. So she, yeah. she's just like willing to turn on a dime to live. So the film received a worldwide release in the summer of 1985, but Orion only gave it a limited release in New York and Los Angeles here in, in the U.S. So as a result, the film had little to no chance of making very much money and ended up bringing in a paltry $100,000 at the U.S. box office Oof. on a budget of $7.5 million. Ouch. And it was it was 
pretty well liked by critics. It, it received pretty good reviews at the time, but it never really connected or had the chance to connect with audiences. Uh, so I am curious then how modern audiences are looking at this film, Gary. Uh, do you have any insight on that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the world of the Internet, there's always somebody who's going to see a movie like this and always somebody that's going to need a nap. <laughs> the So, listen, trimmed these a lot. Uh, just got down to a few quickies because, let's face it, most of these are going to be about rape. And, yes, yeah. And so I, I can't say that none of these are that I'm about to say, but uh, anyway, here we go. One out of five stars. You've been warned. Pornographic garbage. My wife and I watched about 40 minutes of this garbage. Since we were Rutger Hauer fans, we kept holding, hoping it would get better. It kept getting worse. Rutger should be embarrassed by his involvement in such a cheap movie. Corny acting, bad plot, cheesy fight scenes. Then they also had a bunch of useless nudity scenes. Example, a nun was ill for being struck in the head with a sword. Then it goes to her lying on a bed in a room, rolling around in pain. They decide to give you a long graphic view of her nude body. It was very graphic and pointless nudity. All caps. It was vulgar pornography. That is that review. This review says, sucks. That's the title. All caps. The only reason I purchased this movie was because I heard Jennifer Jason Lee was nude in it. I read some of the reviews for this before buying it, and it sounded halfway decent. But after watching it, I came to realize that whoever wrote most of those reviews had to be a huge Rutger Hauer fans because this movie sucks. The acting sucks. The direction sucks. The writing sucks. The only good content is Jennifer Jason Lee's nude scenes, and there are quite a few. This is a great movie to watch on mute. That person's wow different part of the spectrum (laughs) from a lot of these. (laughs) We're just trying to give all sides. Catherine Schmidt says, do you enjoy movies set in medieval times centered around shitty people and an unbearable amount of rape? Then not only are we never, ever going to get along, but boy, oh boy, do I have the movie for you. This almost deserves a higher rating solely because I can't remember the last time I have been so utterly miserable in during a film. Wow. Oof. Alan says, man, I sort of hated this. Medieval stuff is a hard sell for me, but I figured if anybody was going to make it work, Paul V would. In reality, he takes all the things I hate about medieval jams and turns them up to a thousand. This is two hours of gross people rolling around in mud, spitting, raping, puking, raping, having miscarriages, and also there's some raping. Actually, (laughs) I felt like this was guilty of the criticism that I've always seen thrown at Verhoeven. Gratuitous sex and violence without context, etc. A criticism I'd always dismissed as the viewpoint of the dingus. I'm so disillusioned. I need to watch Starship Troopers 10 times to restore order to the universe. And finally, uh, this person was Simone. She was clearly on a December challenge, is what she says. And she says, okay, Verhoeven, what the fuck kind of drugs are you on? On the surface, it looks like a campy period adventure story filled with bravery and romance, but it very quickly devolves into debauchery and savagery. If you only see one Verhoeven film, don't make it this one, because you'll be like, how the fuck did anyone let him make movies after this? The answer is, he's too fucking smart to not make ridiculous shit like this. I'm not saying it's shitty as in it's a bad movie. It's a couple steps above Showgirls, but it's still so ugly, it should have been put out of its misery before it was ever greenlit. 
That being said, I would have enjoyed it a lot more if it hadn't been for the rape scene. I think it sends a dangerous message when a man rapes a woman on film and she turns it into a kinky sex thing, making it look like she enjoyed it or that she didn't really feel any physical or emotional pain. I'll get the film credit for making her into an interesting character who turned a shitty situation to her advantage, but it really made me angry that the film sort of glosses over the rape. It's the tone of the film altogether that makes the rape and bad sex scenes so tricky. The score, acting, cinematography, or more are more what you'd expect in a live actually action Disney film than in an ultra violent period crime drama. So that's Simone. Um, Simone makes an interesting point, I will say. That's the last of the someone needs a nap, by the way. Um, but I will give her this that it never shows, and part of the confusion, I think we we kind of mentioned with Jennifer Jason Lee's character, Agnes, is that you never see her dealing with the ramifications of her choices in this right. film. You never yeah. see her struggle because she has been raped. And, yeah. you know, whatever her intentions are when she's making these decisions, you never see the other side of where her mind is on, on yeah. any of that. Which is part of why it's kind of confusing knowing what her motivations are. Uh, I mean, this movie, it may not have the iconic status of some of Verhoeven's other films, but F Flesh and Blood has gone on to have a pretty significant cult following in recent years. A lot of people have discovered it uh, more recently. People who are a lot of it seems like to me, a lot of people who were fans of his later American work. Start exploring his his early stuff, much like I kind of did and discover flesh and blood and, and view it that way and view it kind of in retrospect, knowing what we know about Verhoeven and how he makes movies. Uh, so there are definitely a lot of people who are big fans of this movie. Uh, in fact, I'm going to take an opposite approach to somebody needs a nap and read a couple of uh, reviews that uh, people, recent reviews of people who seem to really like this movie. So I'm going to read a couple of these from, these are from Letterboxd. Uh, all of these are four to five star reviews. Uh, just a couple of them just to kind of give you an opposite perspective and show you that there are people who are fans of this movie. Uh, so one is by Matt Lynch. who gave it four and a half out of five stars. He says, this is Verhoeven's medieval, the wild bunch, not only an elegy for a time of idealized masculinity or old codes of honor, but an incredibly skeptical story of superstition and tradition, giving way to pragmatism and capital money, religion, love, sex, class, Spoiler alert, power is power. Everyone's full of shit. Survival is the only cause. Rudger Hauer's Christ halo for the win. I do like that symbolism of his, his halo at the end. There's a lot of religious symbolism in this movie, which we haven't really gotten into yet, but maybe we will. Uh, but religious symbolism is something that we, we will see a lot in Verhoeven's films. Because the dude, yeah. the dude is obsessed with Jesus. The dude literally wrote a book about Jesus. That's right. I forgot he did that. Yeah. Uh, Matt Singer, gave, who's a writer for Screen Crush, I believe, but on Letterboxd, he gave it four stars. Uh, he says that it is sleazy, nasty, disturbing, sexy, suspenseful, and bleakly hilarious. In other words, a Paul Verhoeven film. <laughs> and then this one's a little bit longer, but Holly Horror gave it a five out of five stars and said, I'll take flesh and blood over the Princess Bride, Excalibur, or Kroll any day of the week. What it lacks in fantasy, it makes up for in savage exploitation. If you're going into a Paul Verhoeven film expecting romance, you're barking up the wrong tree because what you're going to get in its place is the plague, corpses dripping fluids on lovers eating mandrakes root underneath them, and a band of ferocious lunatics led by Rudger Hauer. 
Joining joining Rudger Hauer are the likes of Brian James, Jennifer Jane, Jason Lee, and Susan Terrell. None of them are likable. In fact, they're so loathsome that they're difficult to watch, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Flesh and Blood came out in the heart of the 1980s when medieval set films filled to the brim with swords and nobles were at their peak, and Verhoeven did what he does best. He put the subgenre on its head, giving us a strong dose of cruel, slightly over-exaggerated realism. The 1500s weren't made up entirely of morally sound heroes and civilized people prancing around beautiful and kind royalty, and this film acts as a neutralizer to those films which sugarcoated the subgenre into a wholesome 80s family affair. And I think her review kind of kind of nails the, it hits the nail on the head, you know, because that is exactly what, what you're getting from Verhoeven. You're not getting a strict black and white look at things, you know? Uh, one thing that a lot of, and this is something that a lot of present day fans praise the film for is the moral ambiguity of its characters and that unflinching look at life in the Middle Ages, you know, something that was unusual for the genre at the time. Because this was, Excalibur, I think, came out in 81 or 82. Um, and so this was just a few years after that. And this is just a few months after Rudger Hauer's own Lady Hawk. And in movies like that, or even something like Kroll or Conan the Barbarian, you know, there's very little ambiguity. You've got your white knights and your black knights. You get your good guys and your bad guys. But Verhoeven's not concerned with any of that. He wanted to give us characters who are morally complex, uh, which we've been talking about a lot already. Just in the, you know, just in Agnes's character, how complex her character is. But that goes for the quote-unquote bad guys in this film as well. Like no one's going to argue that Martin and his band of mercenaries are good people. They're greedy, they're murderous, they're gluttonous, they're fucking rapists. They're 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 bad people, you know. Uh, but they're also like the way that Verhoeven presents them is, is as a group of people who do care about each other. Like they you their suffering is humanized. Like when um when Celine gives birth to a stillborn baby, like it's it's pretty sad, you know. Yeah. Uh, like they, they they become almost sympathetic at times, even though they are also pretty horrible human beings. Well, everybody's shit in this movie. That's the thing is like they're yeah. Yeah. they're all like just trying to survive. It's it's about survival. It feels like just in yeah. general, and so they're not. I mean, this is where context, the context of who's making this movie comes into play, which I don't blame anybody that went into this movie. You wouldn't have known who Paul Verhoeven was if you were an American audience member going into this film. But nowadays, like, if you know who Verhoeven is, you probably have an idea of what to expect. And yeah, you're watching the movie through that lens of this is the guy who made RoboCop and Basic Instinct, you know. Right. It's just like it, it, back in the day, if you, if you didn't know who Stephen King was and he had a book called The Clown, like maybe you like clowns and you think this will be fun. And when it turns out not to be a fun clown, you're like, this is very <laughs> upsetting to me because this is not what I expected. And I bet a lot not, of people uh, felt that way when they watched this. Because even look at the posters and the, and the fucking uh photos and stuff from this movie with like Rutger Hauer and is all white and he's just standing there and he looks like stoic and cool and uh it yeah. make, it looks everything about this movie looks like one if of you like Excalibur you're gonna like it yeah, yeah yeah exactly I mean there's even there's even moments in the film that play a little bit with that like like the scene where Agnes and Steven are uh eating the mandrake and they're like on they're they're like on the ground and the grass and the field. They're eating the mandrake, and what I think 
she says like my heart beats for you you know or something like that but then it like pans back to reveal that they're eating a mandrake under corpses of these hanged men who it said that the the mandrakes sprung from their semen that came out after they died yeah when they get hanged they they basically they come on the ground and yeah so and then they, a mandrake and, the mandrake and a mandrake is, <laughs> comes up there and then it, but so it's playing with those conventions but then making it gross <laughs> this is kind of that this is kind of that <laughs> shit that he i mean this is going to be what to expect from verhoven his whole career like through this whole yeah. run we do uh you can't take any of his movies at solely at face value He's he's playing on the trope of the innocent young lovers and they're right. you know they're like I don't know they're they're doing their thing and they're happy and they're frolicking and they want to eat the plant to fall in eternal love and all of that stuff. Well, she wants to eat the plant to fall in love because she's still she's still living in this superstitious magical realm of like the Middle Ages where Stephen is actually kind of a man of science. Like you hear oh, yeah, him talking about the plague, yeah. uh, so that's another interesting dynamic I think in the film is that he's kind of the guy who's actually more progressive as far as his his beliefs they play with even with him and uh well for, for first the agnes there's always there's always the story of the chastity of the princess and the mm-hmm. uh you know all of that and then she's using sex to like survive and right. so that's like flipping something on its head right there and then there's the chivalrous guy steven who's he's an idiot uh, yeah, <laughs> but he's also the man of science. But Rucker Howard, like Martin, they the only reason they turn into these bad guys in this scenario is because they were betrayed by Stephen's father in the first place. And right, he hired them and then tried to kill them. And yeah. uh, and so then they're just you know they're they're gonna starve to death. And so uh, they're declaring freedom from that basically and uh defying this guy he's their oppressor so even though they're awful people and they're raping and murdering these people are awful too and steven by the way is going to just become his father like that's that's the implication really he's just going to be that same dude too and be oppressive and brutal and uh and you know agnes is going to be right there by his side uh that whole time and that's going to be the way the story goes none of these people are are good people right and, and like they're even, I, I like the um, the idea that Verhoeven explores of like Martin and his band, but especially Martin himself using religion as like a way to get what he wants because they're using that that stat the stat, the statue of the saint that they have Saint Martin, which Saint Martin, yeah, is Saint Martin, it is yeah. Saint Martin, yeah. So they're using the statue as like, oh, it's pointing in that way, but. Rudger Hauer is clearly manipulating it to make it go in the direction he wants it to go in, uh, you know, but then you've also got that character of the the Cardinal, who's this like defrocked priest, who, by the way, is played by Ronald Lacey. We didn't mention this before, but do you guys know Ronald Lacey? Mm, ring a bell. Familiar with him. He uh, he's a British actor, but he's he's in a, he was in a lot of movies in the 80s, but you probably would know him best from Raiders of the Lost Ark as uh, I think I think his name is uh, Tot, the uh, the SS officer in oh, yeah. the little the little glasses and the funny little hat yeah, yeah. okay yeah uh, yeah. yeah oh wow yeah <laughs> that's cool but yeah I, you know uh, this the flesh and blood i feel like because it has all of this stuff that you expect from a verhoven movie it, it really acts as sort of a bridge 
between his Dutch work and his later American work. This is kind of like a little bit of both of those worlds because he's got uh, Gerald Soderman co-writing it with him, who had, as we mentioned, had co-written everything Verhoeven had done since Turkish Delight. Uh, he's got Rudger Hauer, his frequent collaborator as a star. He's got Jan de Bont, who, his cinematographer, who's done everything since uh, since that short film, but also in, as far as feature films go, everything since Turkish Delight or had, had been working with him since Turkish Delight. And then, but even more than the personnel, like it's a thematic, it, it kind of exists thematically between his Dutch and American work because a lot of Verhoeven's thematic concerns that we'll see pop up again and again as we go through his career are all present here. You've got the satire of religion and authority, his exploration of flawed heroism, and yeah, his somewhat problematic sexual politics. Uh, but here he's he's really as we'll see him do again and again. I mean, I think most notably with Starship Troopers, but all, with all of these movies, really, he's taking a genre and he's kind of completely turning it on its head. Because uh, in this, yeah, you the character who would typically be your white knight hero, which in this case is Steven, only kind of reluctantly gives chase <laughs> to, for his bride to be. He doesn't really care about her that much. Yeah. He's just doing it because it's what he's expected to do you know, oh, and then yeah. he's often shown as being ineffective and, and unsympathetic. Like he's not a guy that you root for. Yeah. It, it's, it's when I, when I was reading some of the things, like what really hit me about Steven is, is, is what I just talked about. Like he's going to end up being that oppressor too. And, and so there's, there's multiple themes that obviously uh, Verhoeven cares about. And one of them is uh, you mentioned the church. I mean, uh, that's very clear here, the disguise of, like the church using its power, or this is even could be the rich, the people just using their power to commit atrocities or be evil just because they can uh, right. using their, you know, that ability that's clearly there with religion, even in this one, um, in this one, you know, I saw Verhoeven uh, in the commentary stuff. He talked about communism. He he found a lot of like the the way that communism goes askew all the time. That like yeah. uh, especially with like Stalin, he mentions because you know like even with Martin on either side of it, it's like Martin they express their freedom. They've got the uh, what's he say? The I'm trying to think of the the words he uses, but not not the and thine or something. I forget the the term. But anyway, the point is is that he's saying they they've clearly got their set up. But then Martin sort of is in control and started starts dictating things in the way he wants to. Right. And this world that he's creating here is also kind of a far cry from what Hollywood typically shows us in the genre. You know, um, it's gross. The world is gross. I mean, yeah, there's some gross stuff that the characters do, but the world itself is gross, filled with like blood and disease. I mean, there there's a major plot point in the film that involves a plague riddled dog carcass being catapulted at people like that's a major thing in this movie that's super yeah. gross yeah <laughs> but you know i don't think anyone would consider this to be a masterpiece or, or among Ver verhoeven's best work i mean even verhoeven himself would say that uh but it certainly got has the over-the-top decadence and perversity that one expects from a paul verhoeven movie uh, it's also got some really good performances from Rudger Hauer and Jennifer Jason Lee, although there are some other performances in it that are not great. I think Susan Tyrrell, who I like in other movies, she's a little over the top here, almost 
plays Celine like a parody of a medieval prostitute. Yeah. And then what the fuck is Bruno Kirby even doing in this movie, honestly, <laughs> in his New York accent? Like, <laughs> what is he doing here? Yeah. Uh, the main issue to me in it, I, I understand why the decision was made because we've been talking about this this whole episode, really, but the audience doesn't have anyone to root for in this movie because everyone is shitty. Yeah. Everyone is kind of unlikable. Neither the heroes nor the villains are people that you want to root for. Even Agnes, who is this movie's version of like a damsel in distress, it's hard to like because she's she comes across as manipulative, or at least her motivations are never made clear enough to know whether or not we should be vote like should be cheering for her. Right. There there could have been more depth with Agnes. Um, there there like like I said before, I mean, maybe you could have done some stuff like showing the other side of things when she's alone, like what she's thinking sitting in a room or something. Yeah, but yeah. That said, you know, that's that does go back to your point about this was Orion. You know, this was clearly this was not at the forefront of Paul Verhoeven's mind in this movie. This was not this was kind of sprung on him. This was not an idea that he had for her to even be a big deal in the first place. So he obviously wasn't planning a 3d uh presentation of agnes either he was right he gave her as much as he felt like was deserved i guess i don't know yeah yeah, yeah. well I, I don't think he just wasn't as concerned with the character he wasn't overthinking it with her he was just like all right she's manipulating her way through this just like everybody else let's keep that theme alive i guess right right, right. i mean verhoven has speculated that the film did poorly at the U S box office because it was just too downbeat and too cynical for American audiences. So he decided that if he wanted to make movies for Americans, he needed to leave the Netherlands and come live in America. Uh, he wanted to basically immerse himself in the American lifestyle. If he, wa- this was kind of his thought. He's like, I need to immerse myself in the American lifestyle. If I want to understand American tastes and attitudes, uh, plus, he, he had discovered that making films in the Netherlands had become increasingly difficult. So it was just, it was it was hard for him. So on September 28th, 1985, Ver, Paul Verhoeven left the Netherlands and wouldn't make another film there for another two decades. Wow. Long time not to go home. Now, I don't know that he didn't visit, but he definitely didn't make a movie there. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> He, I'm sure he had. I'm sure he has friends back. I'm sure he has friends back there. <laughs> uh, but as he was in the airport, he was about to depart for Hollywood, and a documentary crew who was kind of ironically, they were filming a documentary about the bright future of Dutch filmmaking. But they caught Verhoeven's parting words on camera right before he gets on the plane for Hollywood. I'm gonna let Gary take this. At the moment, there is too much negative feedback about my work in the Netherlands. You waste. Did I get Spanish all of a sudden or something? I don't know. A like little bit. Or <laughs> <laughs> like, a, hey, what is this thing? I don't know. That's Italian. Now yeah. you're doing well, right? <laughs> it's a me, Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> At the moment. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. Uh, you did so well earlier, Gary. Uh, thanks. I, uh, I, just, I just need a second. Hold on. You have to become Paul Verhoeven. Right. I have to to just get into it. The sequel to being John Malkovich. Being Paul Verhoeven. Being Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so just since it's been three minutes since we set this quote up, <laughs> this is Paul, Paul Verhoeven's parting words as he left for Hollywood. 
at the moment, there is just too much negative feedback about my work in the Netherlands. You waste so much time and energy setting up a film in the teeth of the molarizing prejudices of all the committees you have to face in this country in order to get your money. And then in a later interview, this is actually in, in 2000, in The Guardian, he would kind of explain this a little bit further. One of the reasons I left the country was that the government subsidy board wasn't willing to give me any money because they thought that I was an indecent, perverted, decadent person, which is probably true. They shouldn't have held it against me. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he left his home country at the age of 47 to come to Hollywood, where he was a virtual unknown with the hopes to make it as a mainstream director. And it was with his next film, his first full Hollywood production, that he would cement his reputation as one of the all-time great cult and genre filmmakers. And that's where we're going to pick up in our next episode, fellas, with Verhoeven's 1987 classic, RoboCop. Woo! Yeah, they said he literally attended the Dutch Film Festival and the next morning flew to America to start (laughs) RoboCop. That's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And I mean that—that's what that RoboCop and the movies he made after that are the reason we're we're talking about Paul Verhoeven. If it had ended with Flesh and Blood, we probably wouldn't be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a—he's an interesting guy. This, I mean, it's like. So I—I I liked this movie. I thought this movie was pretty good. Like I thought it was pretty decent. I mean, it's not like. I don't know. I, I could have gone either way, I guess. But something about it still captured me, and and it's just it's fun to watch. Him. I mean, despite its flaws, the movie is never boring. Yeah, yeah. I never yeah. think it's boring. I was interested. I was engaged the entire time. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's also, you appreciate some of the filmmaking that goes into it, too. Uh, yeah. The, the and, and, and just his, his unwillingness to portray violence in any other way than its most visceral. Like, he, he just, he wants... He wants it to sting and he wants to show corpses mutilated and he wants yeah, to looking gross. Yeah. It's never, and... it's never light. It's uh, he's got like so many things you're going to see come up. You mentioned this a little bit earlier, but um, I was, I looked up something on this earlier. It was like common Verhoeven things. I found like a YouTube video that talked about it. And they're always, they said like uh, religious imagery uh, mirrors, they said, which I don't remember a specific mirror scene in this movie, but I did see an old poster where it said a mirror of our times or something like that. (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, it's there (laughs) at least. (laughs) uh, But, uh, you know, then also just uncomfortableness. I said like, he's, he's very big on, you know, just putting characters in like uncomfortable, miserable situations and, uh, and just, uh, but yeah, the violence. And then rape was another one too, that they're commonly like, uses rapes. I mean, we, we, I didn't mention this, but like every movie, just I think every single one of his movies from Turkish delight on to this has a rape of some sort in it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is strap crazy. in for a fun time, kids. <laughs> uh, the thing, the thing that YouTube video, I, and I apologize to that person i don't remember what video it was that i was watching but the thing they pointed out was is what's interesting about him with the rape scenes that he does to look for is that uh it's always by men and 
committing rape on females that they likely, based on the film, could have consensually had sex with. So that Verhoeven's very hung up on that they're doing this and it's not about sex or anything else. It's about evil. It's not because yeah. they're horny. It's not because, you know, like if anything else, except that there's just an awful evil thing to do. Like in yeah. all of these scenes, it's like most of the time, it's like somebody that could have consensually done this and they're just choosing, like they just want to hurt someone. And yeah. It's, it's a, it's an evil thing and it's a power. Yeah. Thing. And uh, so that they, they point out that he's at least very good about depicting that side of it, that even, you know, even in flesh and blood, they pointed out that, you know, based on the girl, like Rucker could have probably wooed her or something, you know, yeah. and uh, it just didn't happen. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it just, there's, there's a lot of cool stuff that, that <laughs> I don't want to say a lot of cool stuff right after the rape thing. There's a lot of great <laughs> stuff for her, but does and he's just, he's the best rape filmer that I've ever known. Um, <laughs> um, uh, let's see here. What else? I was trying to think of other things I was thinking about this week because it may, it did make me think about a lot of different stuff. I, I I think he's a really good director, and uh, oh, the score. We didn't mention the score, but uh, that score was made. It's uh, Basil, oh Basil Podoros. Is that his name? Yeah, it's like Podoros or something. Pol- um, Basil Polidoros, who who. It's going to work with him a couple more times because I know he does RoboCop and Starship Troopers at least. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, he had first seen him in, uh, he had heard a score in Conan, the Destroyer in 84 and uh, got him for this movie. So he thought it fit pretty well. But uh, yeah, man, it's just, uh, this also, also another thing I just thought of was he never has like really happy endings or like really big closure it doesn't feel like like it always is like the story continues and it's still not pretty well yeah i mean even in this martin isn't exactly defeated yeah because we see him limping off into the uh, in front of the flames or whatever at the end of the movie so that it it, it, this this shitty life continues (laughs) and the same will be you know spoiler alert if you haven't seen robocop if you haven't go fuck yourself but um The you know even at the end I'd of buy that top, for a dollar. It's not like <laughs> it's not like things are just completely shut down. We'll talk about more about Robocop when it gets there. But yeah, there's nobody's like happy at the end right. of Robocop. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So before we do wrap things up, then for this episode, I wanted to see: Do you guys have any further viewing? Any uh, any films that you would pair with this if you were doing like a double feature with Flesh and Blood? Yeah, I think for uh, for this particular one, I, I the stark contrast. You typically, you try to get them where they align somehow. I think for this one, you know, for it to really showcase what it was like in the Middle Ages, you go for a stark contrast. So I would say go with uh, First Night with uh, Sean Connery and uh, Richard Gere. That is so uh, weird. Which, that was the only one I had was first night. Really? <laughs> yeah. But really. it just, you know, obviously plays up the, you know, the fashion of that time where it was not that fashionable. And, you know, the romance, which was clearly not what was most likely occurring at that time. But well, yeah, the, I think the, it, also the two opposing, like it's, it's about yeah. like Arthur and Lancelot, like they're right. Right. Feud over Marion basically in a sense. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
That would be my pick. And then get get yourself a nice big turkey leg and just lean into it. Watch Excalibur. (laughs) Clearly, we've made the point. Well, Excalibur was going to be my my mention because we've mentioned it a few times here. And I feel like if you haven't seen Excalibur, you should. Uh, John Borman, the director. But uh, it's Excalibur is pretty cool. I mean, it is definitely much more of like in the fantasy realm. It's got like Merlin as a major character in it. It's about the Knights of the Round Table and all that, you know, so it's much more of the medieval fantasy, but it's got a great cast. I mean, it's got um, Helen Mirren's in it, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, shit. Uh, Gabriel Byrne is in it. Liam Neeson's in it. Uh, it's got a it's got a great cast, you know, uh, Nigel Terry plays King Arthur in it. But and Kroll, I think, would be another fun one. Uh, Kroll oh, yeah. is another kind of wild, more more of like a fantasy. I mean, Kroll has aliens and shit in it, but it's got like a medieval feel to it. It's almost like a medieval uh, set fantasy combined with sci-fi. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So I think that'd be a good one as well. And of course, Lady Hawk. I mean, if you just want the Rudger Hauer medieval double feature, but see kind of opposite takes on that, then uh, check out Lady Hawk. It's also got Michelle Pfeiffer and uh old uh old ferris bueller himself matthew broderick yeah. yeah fun the uh dragon heart with sean connery yeah yeah that'd be a good <laughs> with one sean connery <laughs> well he's the voice of the dragon <laughs> he's the voice of the dragon and the dragon i love that movie. i loved that movie when the i dragon was like rape scene is oh man intense. oh man just like the one in um in shrek <laughs> <laughs> it's enhanced now if you combine scenes like if it was Eddie Murphy raping Sean Connery's dragon. How do you think the donkey <laughs> and the dragon in the Shrek movies procreated? Because by the by the second or third one, they've got the little baby uh, dronkies, the little dragon donkey things. But physically, how does that work? Maybe this is a discussion for a, for a Shrek episode in the future. Yeah, yeah. It's a series. A Shrek yeah, series. Yeah. A whole Shrek series. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many movies of that franchise. Oh, man. I think it's time to wrap this up, fellas. We'll Speaking of franchises, week. though, I will say this. Say what you will about Paul Verhoeven. I think, besides, I mean, obviously, besides his Dutch films, like this is the only one where he comes into America, and this is not like a franchise now. I think every other one of these freaking movies Paul Verhoeven makes becomes a franchise of some sort. I mean, sort of. I mean, yeah, Starship Troopers definitely did. RoboCop obviously did. There was a Basic Instinct two uh, years years later, but I don't know about Showgirls though. I don't think Showgirls. Okay, so Showgirls. There's or Hollow. Well, Hollow Man. It was there. I think there's a sequel to Hollow Man, and I think they fight. Well, you could say they remade Total Recall. So sure, that counts, Gary. Yeah, we'll give it to you. I'm just saying, the guy (laughs) creates. He creates. creates, Yeah, he creates um, intellectual properties. I'm looking up Showgirls two though, just to see. There is a fucking Showgirls 2, pal. Is there? Really? there is Direct a video. Direct Showgirls video. 2, Pennies from Heaven is what it's called. No, it's not. Wait, pen- from pennies, it's- pennies or panties? Pennies. 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 But it's okay. pennies like P-E-N-N-Y apostrophe S. Like Penny is from uh, Heaven. Okay, so in Showgirls, heaven. this is for a later time, I guess. But there's the actress, Rita Raphael. Uh, she, she's also in Mulholland drive, uh, and a movie called Trasharella. And, uh, anyway, she's also 
some Emmanuel movies. But anyway, the point is she wrote and directed and stars in Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven. She's in Showgirls 1 as a character called Penny slash Hope. Well, this feels like content for our Showgirls episode, Gary. Yeah, but anyway. So even <laughs> Showgirls is a franchise. I'm All looking right, up Showgirls well. 3 right now. Because <laughs> I hope it uh, exists. Showgirls in space. There is Showgirls 3, London Calling. <laughs> oh, it keeps going. Do we go for four? No, we're, we're wrapping up this episode. <laughs> Uh, where can you guys be found on the internet? There is no show girls for thank you, Gary. <laughs> I'm yet, yet, yet. <laughs> I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all the socials. And if you like Star Trek, come check out my podcast, the Computer Resume podcast. We're covering the entire Star Trek franchise. Uh, for everyone, we're starting from the beginning, so it's uh. We're almost done with season one of Enterprise, so we're we're getting there. Uh, but you can find that show anywhere you find podcasts, and you can find that on social media at Computer Resume. I am uh, at This Is Gary Horn on all the things. I also have a wrestling show called At This Is Pro Wrestling. Uh, well, no, it's just called This Is Pro Wrestling. It's at TIPW Show on all the things. I'm Justin underscore Bishop. Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox. You can find the show at cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram. You can like us on Facebook. Join our Facebook group. Uh, join our Discord. You can find links to all that stuff at cinemashock.net, where you can also find all of our old episodes, links to merch, links to where you can subscribe to the show, and pretty much everything else you need is on cinemashock.net. Until next week, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys. Wow. I forgot to look one up. <laughs> wow. All right. I like that. So I mean, if you give me a second, that, I'll find one. But two fucking weeks, Todd. I know. I know. No one time. thing I had to do. No more soup for you. Damn it. <laughs>